welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to the designer, author, and speaker, Manuel Lima. Manuel is one of those people whose work and books I had seen around for years, but never really put together that they were all coming from the same person until a few months ago, actually, when I interviewed uh, Ellen Lupton back over the summer. As you know, at the end of every interview, I always ask the guests for some books or author recommendations, and Ellen said how much she liked the work of Manuel Lima. Then, a couple days later, Rob G. and Petro, who was my very first podcast guest, messaged me after listening to that episode, saying that he actually works with Manuel at Google. So, a few weeks after that, I found myself at Google's New York office recording this conversation. Manuel is probably best known for his website, Visual Complexity, which is a uh, blog that cataloged examples of information graphics and data visualizations, as well as his books, The Book of Trees and The Book of Circles. But he's also a design lead at Google and lectures and writes frequently about data visualization. In our conversation, Manuel and I talk about these two strands of his career and really how he thinks about the split between writing and researching and speaking versus the designing and managing and being a practitioner. In a lot of ways, Manuel is the sort of quintessential scratching the surface guest. He works across disciplines and seems to move seamlessly between practicing and scholarship. And I just really love talking to him and really enjoyed this conversation and hearing about how he thinks about his work and how he's developed this really unique practice. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Manuel Lima. I kind of wanted to, to start just before we kind of talk about these larger ideas that I'm interested in with just a little bit of your background. I was able to kind of read some of it online, but it seemed like you had this very kind of interesting and diverse background that I'd like to talk about a, a little bit first. So how, yeah. I, I guess that's a good, kind of good way to start is just kind of where your interest in design came from or how you got started working in design. It's a great question. Um, I think I, maybe I was 16 uh, and I was in Portugal in high school and I had a great class. It was actually on industrial design. Okay. Um, and that was really the, the first time that I was exposed to this because I always thought uh, sort of the only possible path if anyone interested in art right. is architecture. It's right. only like <laughs> money-making possibility, right? right? And then once I had that class, it kind of opened my eyes to, the, to a new sort of realm, right? A yeah, realm yeah. where you might feel like a, an empowered artist, but you can also make money in the process right. and create right. beautiful things that are functional and have an immediate use on someone else's lives. Mm-hmm. I think that was really compelling to me. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's why I ended up... Um, studying as an undergraduate student uh, industrial design okay. uh, in Lisbon. And, and what were you what were you thinking you wanted to design at that point? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, were you thinking of you know, furniture yeah. or products? I don't think I had a specific object in mind. I always thought cutlery was really an, in, oh, interesting. an interesting sort of like <laughs> object. I mean, I remember even like my dad once brought me uh, one of those cutlery utensils that you had in some planes back in the day that a fork, well, the same object was both a fork, a spoon, and a knife. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
And I thought that was like such a creative sort of you know, take on something yeah. that we use you know, on a regular basis. So that was really intriguing to me, but I never had like objects that was like really or you know yeah. fetishized about. Well, you know? I love I love that cutlery was the thing also, because a lot of times industrial designers or at least the industrial designers I know yeah. have these kind of grand ambitions like, yeah, I want to redesign the chair or yeah. you know, I want to you know, technology I, I wanna be I wanna do the new laptop or something. Sure, sure, sure. And then you have something that was just so utilitarian that yeah. you were so fascinated by. I think it was more about the utilitarian aspect of design more than the aesthetics per se. That was always okay. like more of a, of a strong sort of interest of mine. Like yeah. How can you sort of revamp something uh, and rethink something that uh, you use on a regular yeah. basis, yeah. but in a completely different way that can be much better for, for people and enhance their lives okay. in some way? This is, this, is, this makes a lot of sense to me because I was kind of thinking yeah. about, on the subway here, I was thinking about kind of what yeah. I wanted to talk to you about. and I. Um, Last year, taught two user experience and kind of user interface design mm -hmm. classes to undergrad students, and was thinking about how much overlap there is in talking about industrial design or kind of product design in, mm. in kind of the traditional yeah, the sense, traditional not, product, not yeah. digital product design, <laughs> with ideas of user experience, and that there's a lot you can kind of pull from the two, um, especially in regards to function and utilitarianism and things like that. And so, where did that kind of where did that bridge, how did you cross that bridge between kind of thinking about these physical products to now having a career that's mostly been online, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that was in college um, and in college. I mean, the great thing about my undergrad was was just the diversity of, of things I ended up yeah. designing, you know, from phones to chairs to, to um, step platters. I mean, you, you name it. I, yeah. And ceramics. We really like played with every set of medium and material right. and, and object and that alone was like immensely empowering but then as I, as I get older as I think so those degrees in Europe in most places in Europe are actually five to six years oh okay so it's a okay. it's a pretty intense undergrad yeah. uh, course um, and I think close to my fourth year which was you know almost halfway through the course yeah. still I realized that the industry in Portugal was very slender to say the best mm -hmm. right there was not a lot of opportunities yeah. for you to uh, to be an industrial designer, at least you know, right, that, right. making a good living. Uh, so in many ways, it was kind of like the, the struggle of an artist, even yeah. as an industrial designer in Portugal. And of course, you had other countries in Europe, like Denmark and Italy, that had a much bigger tradition right. in right. industrial design. Right. Uh, and actually, I ended up doing a, um, an internship, uh, an academic internship in Denmark, because I wanted oh, to okay. experience that. But then I think halfway through, I realized that uh, the digital was also very appealing. Uh, this was also, you know, at the time where web design was a very new right, thing, right. where Flash was right. was coming in. So you had like this massive sort of potential yeah. to design in a whole new medium. Right. And that was immensely compelling, of course. Right. Me. And at the time, that I was already experimenting with so many mediums and different uh -huh. materials and so on. Um, and then I took a few courses, I think back in the day it was things like 3D Max, you know, this mm, application yeah, that you can create yeah. uh, 3D objects, uh, Flash, Director, back in the day, <laughs> designing CD-ROMs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all oh, of that I was, again, that. I, it was all about experimenting new things, and I, you know, I, I quickly sort of felt that the digital was, was, was really appealing. Okay. It was more, was more ephemeral, yet you could have more control over it, right? You yeah. could change it, you could yeah. tweak it all the time. and in the industrial design, that's really hard. Right? Yeah. There's that sense of like you do it and then it just 
takes too many years. Did were there things from that kind of traditional industrial design education that you found have influenced how you think about working kind of digitally? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's kind of maybe it's not so much of a coincidence, but I've now I'm like recruiting and hiring right. UX designers, and I've a lot of the people that I ended up hiring for my teams, you know, in other places that I've been, such as Microsoft, right. and Nokia, and now Google, uh, they normally come. You know, from either industrial design, or traditional product oh, design, or architecture, and I, I don't think that's necessarily coincidence. I think the thinking is very similar, right? I mean, yeah. um, there's a thinking about focusing on the user first, right? I mean, right. before even you start thinking about the sort of the look and feel of a chair, right? How it's going right. to look. You have to think about is this the right material? You know, you have to think about the environment. You have to think about yeah. the you know ergonomics. Like all those things are critical. Right. from any type of product that you are creating from a user experience point of view. That's right. interesting. I, I mean, um, it makes a lot of sense, but I would not have realized that that number was so high. It is really high. I mean, yeah, this is something that I've been sort of dealting with um, in my entire career, seeing yeah. that sort of overlap. Yeah. There's a big overlap of people, yeah, traditionally yeah. from product to industrial design. That's, that's navigating really into UX. I mean, of course, also because UX has a much more sort of right. Right. market Currently, uh, for that type of role, I want to I want to come back to this in a bit, but I I, I want to make sure that we kind of stay yeah. on this this path for for sure. a little bit. Um, I'm I'm curious, kind of where your interest, so much of your work, your public work at least, mm -hmm. is around kind of data visualization mm -hmm. and and uh, kind of information graphics and yeah. and things like that. Where that how did that start to kind of filter into this? Yeah, that happened during my, my master's, uh, my okay. MFA at, at Parsons, okay. right? So I was telling you I did a, a, an internship in Denmark. Right. And that was immensely compelling for me. Uh, uh, I really wanted to experiment again, continue that experimentation of different mediums and right. materials. Right. So I chose, um, I sent, actually, I didn't choose necessarily, I sent a bunch of resumes, a bunch of companies in Denmark. It had to be in Denmark because okay. I'd been there a few years before, I was maybe 15 or something. Um, and I was just amazed by how design is such an important yeah. uh, aspect of that culture. Right. Right? Uh, it's one of those countries where you, you go into a taxi and you say you're a designer and they look at you as if you're a god. Uh, right? yeah. So that sense of like, wow, they really respect, <laughs> right. they value design to a level I've never experienced before. Right. Right? And in, in, a certain, in a certain degree, you can expand that to, to all of Scandinavia. Uh, but Denmark was really uh, compelling to me. And so I sent a bunch of resumes to different companies there, and then one of them uh, accepted, said, yes, please come in, we'd love to have you. Uh, that was ContraPoint. Okay. Um, I don't know if they're even still around, but at the time, one of the great things about that company was that they were doing both industrial design, web design, uh, they were doing traditional graphic right. design and printing, uh, they were doing all the CD-ROM uh, new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they were really experimenting with a bunch of different things, and for me to be exposed to that, right, right in a professional setting, right, was again really enriching. Okay. Um, and then it was during that internship that I met someone who had been at Parsons. Okay. And that person recommended me that program. Okay. Uh, and then I went back to Portugal, uh, worked on my portfolio, applied to Parsons, was able to get in. And then it was really kind of changed my, my career. In, in and so, what, uh, I, I'm kind of struggling yeah. to ask this question. I don't know exactly how, what I'm trying to ask, but you kind of discovering Parsons and, and building that portfolio to go there. Again, did you kind of know 
kind of what you were interested in designing at that time? Or did you kind of see this kind of shift happening? Or Not at all. I was still very much in that sort of experimentation phase, okay. which I think every kind of uh, young designer needs to go yeah. through, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of a cliche. People say, like, I need to find myself. But it's not necessarily finding yourself, but finding your interests, yeah. right? Okay. And sometimes you just have to start somewhere. Because right. if you just, it's not going to come out of nothing. Right. right. You have to start somewhere. And sometimes it's not even the first thing that you find, but it's like a, a chain of events that leads to finally the, okay. the thing that okay. you've been sort of like searching for. Right. And for me, that was very much the case. Like when I was doing my internship in Denmark, I had no idea of, of data visualization at the time. I don't think I've ever even heard of the term. <laughs> right. And then I went to Parsons, and then I was again still, still investigating from 3D to physical computing. Oh, okay. To a bunch of okay. different things, which you should do in grad yeah, school, yeah, right? Yeah. Try different sort of uh, approaches and, and, and disciplines. And then there was a there was a teacher of mine. He was teaching this class called information architecture. Okay. And I remember him showing this diagram, which is called the understanding spectrum. Okay. Where data leads into uh, into information, information oh, leads right, into right, knowledge. Right. I know this. Yeah. And knowledge leads into wisdom. Uh, so it's called this understanding spectrum. And again, even though my background was, of course, in industrial design, I was yeah. just so compelled to be part yeah. of the process, especially creating the bridge between information and knowledge, right? Between, right. between producers and consumers. Right. Like, how can we make that uh, an effective bridge, yeah. an effective link? Um, that was really compelling. And, and I mean, and that it sounds like that really changed kind of the entire trajectory of your career Absolutely. going forward. Absolutely. It kind of did, yeah. And so where... I, I, I'm, I'm very curious kind of where the where the kind of research and the writing and that, that you're you're a practicing designer but then you're also kind of producing these books yeah. that are kind of about history and culture and, and like the the ideas behind data visualization and information graphics where did that interest come in and that, that you didn't just want to be making these, but you wanted to be kind of teaching them and studying them? Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good question. I, I, no, looking back, I think that was really like the fork in the road, right? Uh, yeah. And the branch, uh, and the forking happened in such a way that when I graduated from, from Parsons, my, my, MFA, my MFA in, in design and technology, then I had to get a job, right? Right. Uh, that was priority number one. Yeah. Uh, I need to get some money to pay the rent, and and then I went to RGA. Right? Okay. Um, and even though I was a young sort of UX designer, and again I was actually an interaction designer, I should say. Okay. Um, oh, right. Which is you know was still a very sort of new practice even for RGA and RGA. Yeah. In many ways, I think have really been a critical sort of element in the industry, dictating well, not dictating, but like really exemplifying what interaction design is as a practice. Right. And for me, it was a remarkable school uh, yeah. to be, you know, what makes a great right. interaction designer. Um, so that was really compelling. So I, I saw the job there in RGA. I was really excited. But then even to be honest, uh, because the, the last year during my MFA was so intense, you know, I had never <laughs> yeah. like a break. I yeah. never had a break. Uh, you know, I was working like, you know, all during the week, weekends and so on. I found that having all of a sudden like two days that I don't have to work was... Right. Really strange, right? Right. So I find myself with all this empty time, right? I, I had nothing yeah, else yeah. to do. And I thought to myself, 
I was, I mean, I knew that I was immensely passionate about data visualization. Okay. Uh, but going back to that yeah. diagram, even my thesis was already about right. data visualization. Was right. what's this project called BlogViz? Right. To understand right. how information spreads across the blogosphere, and that thing was was not completely dormant. It was very active in my brain, in my sort of uh, being, and I wanted to do something with it. And then by having all this free time, <laughs> right, yeah. all the weekends. I started doing uh, putting together visualcomplexity.com, okay. which was in many ways the result of my one to two years uh, research for my thesis, okay. right? all the, the projects I had covered, yeah. mapping networks in a, in a different way. And so, so, so the visual complexity site is, was not part of your thesis, or it was, not part it was of my kind thesis. of after you graduated? Absolutely, okay. yeah. So, my te so I, I started, so again, like after that sort of uh, class, information architecture with, uh, yeah. with this uh, great teacher of mine, I started doing, everything else became related with data visualization. Okay. All the projects that I got right. involved, right. all the classes that yeah. I, I chose moving forward were all related to that discipline in one way or the other. Um, so I did things like uh, visualizing human viruses and, mm. and, and, and computer viruses <laughs> to see if there's any yeah. sort of overlap. Yeah for similarities in the way that they spread. I started um, uh, mapping how diseases spread in the US. I started, and then I went to my thesis, and I was really interested in this idea of information diffusion, right? right. This idea of right. word of mouth. Right. How certain memes, right, or ideas, right. or bits of information get spread from mm -hmm. person A to person B. And as you can imagine, this has been a great interest for social sciences, right? right? right. How, again, information spreads within a social setting. But then, but it, over time, it has been extremely hard to actually track that, uh, right. you know, the spread, the flow of information. But then, of course, came the web, came right. the blogosphere, and it became a lot easier for us to uh, understand okay. the sort of the spread of information within that particular yeah. setting. And that was really my, I was really passionate about that, right? I was, I wanted to sort of explore, and so my thesis was really about, again, mapping the okay. information diffusion within blogs. Uh, within block space, okay. within the blogosphere. Okay. Uh, one specific meme, it's you know starts by a blog posting something, and then how it spreads, how it contaminates right. other blog bloggers and blogs, and how it all of a sudden spreads to the mainstream. Right. So that that sort of process was really compelling to me at the time. Okay. But then, in order for me to start visualizing the, all of this, yeah. I had to start seeing what other people were uh, okay. Uh, okay. mapping and visualizing. Yeah. So that's how my research was primarily about uh, compiling all these examples right. of network visualizations, right? Okay. And uh, I was really trying to be as pluralistic as possible. Uh, yeah. yeah. Picking examples from biology, from computer systems, from social networks, etc. Right. Okay. So, but then that research was was done once I finished. I graduated. I found a job at RGA. Like all that research was again dormant in yeah. my laptop. Yeah. So I started working on visualcomplexity.com as a way to, well, first and foremost, to actually organize my own personal research to, to make it easier yeah. for myself, right? right? As a bookmarking system, in a way. But also, I felt that maybe some people will find okay. this useful. Right? This, yeah, this is exactly, uh, yeah. as you were talking about this, this is what I was thinking about, is, is where that idea that what essentially was your personal research could be something that was public or shared. Yeah. And kind of what was the value that you saw in that, or, or, or why was that something that was interesting to you? You never, you never know exactly. I mean, just because you have an interest in something, uh, you never know exactly if even one more person yeah. will find that equally compelling or right. equally interesting. So it's always a risk. 
but I don't think I was even in sort of that. Um, I was not. I was not even thinking about either making money of it or just like getting a larger audience. I was really just well. First of all, I had all this free time, right? <laughs> right. So I wanted to like make something yeah. useful with that free time, and for me, it was again primarily useful for me, right? Yeah. It was really about creating my own personal bookmarking system, organizing my research, right. and putting all the things together. Because you never know when you're going to need it, right? Yeah. Maybe I was working on a project at, right. at RGA that I wanted to go back and find, you know, be inspired by some of that. But I think maybe in the back of my mind was the thinking that, yeah, maybe I think other people will find this, yeah. this relevant. And know, I guess it, that I, it could be something there. And I guess there was this almost, you know, you'd spent these last two years or whatever, you know, yeah. kind of working on your thesis, thinking about organizing information that in all of this information that you had researched for that project, that then became a project of itself to organize all of that information in a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think, yeah, well, maybe that, that's, yeah, maybe you are uncovering something because I, I mean, in my books, I somehow an example of that, that yeah. I'm a slightly obsessed with taxonomical processes, right. Right? right? Making sense of the world and organizing things and putting those right. things into categories and all that. I even had like a, I think an old manager of mine at, at Microsoft even compared me to, at some point, to a, to an 18th century biologist, right. you know, like, right. like looks at the world and like categorizes everything right. and right. creates this like system for making sense of the world. Um, so I was really compelled by that, right? And maybe that was sort of yeah. like the, the whole sort of genesis of, of, of visual complexity. I mean, it almost reminds me of, and this is a little bit off topic, but it's, yeah. it's um, I talked to Michael Rock for this mm -hmm. podcast and he has this kind of idea that that he and I talked about when I interviewed him, and he's kind of talked about it uh, in other places, that design at its kind of very core fundamental level is about creating coherences, hmm. and it's about putting kind of frames around things, or it's a system of organizing things to make the world understandable. And so that's everything from, from you know, city blocks to, uh, you know, country borders could all be seen as design gestures. And so when your manager kind of compares you to a yeah. biologist, it's the same thing. It's kind of like that's in a lot of ways what designers are doing in a, in a kind of wider sense, I think. I, th I mean, I, I think it's really like the way we, I mean, even putting design apart, I think it's yeah. the way we humans right. understand right. Uh, the world around us, right? right? We are a classifying animal. We right. only understand right. things in comparison to others, right? right? So the idea of grouping and, and categories and all of those yeah. taxonomical yeah. sort of like processes yeah. are critical. And maybe that's how I'm, I mean, maybe it's a personal way for me to actually make sense of the world. Right. I, I think it's, it's it's way more general than that. I think it's, again, like how humans actually yeah. make sense yeah. of the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, how, I'm, I'm curious kind of yeah. how, how the website then became books and that you're kind of giving talks and lecturing on these things. Like how did that become yeah. all of these other things? Yeah, so again, going back to the forking, right? So right. you know, my career as an interaction designer continued, right? Like and then, <laughs> you know, I, I became a senior interaction designer at RGA. And then after RGA in New York, I moved to RGA London to actually okay. I was actually part of the, the team of five people that created the the, the, the RGA London. Oh wow. The first okay. office of okay. RGA outside of, of mm -hmm. Of New York, actually, outside of the U.S. for sure. It was our first. Well, it was actually the first second office. Well, it was our second office, right? To okay. Begin with. Yeah, yeah. So being part of that process was fascinating. I think now the London um, office is right. in 
huge. Right. I think it's the second biggest or, or something. Um, but then my career continued, right? Then Art.ga, uh, Nokia, Microsoft, etc. cetera. Uh, but then on the, the other side, I had sort of like two separate right. lives, right. right? Which I think it was also like an interesting aspect of it. Um, and then on my data visualization uh, live, let's put it that way. Um, yeah, then I, I started putting that visual complexity overcome that the website went live, I think on October 2005. Oh, okay. Um, so I didn't realize that was that. Yeah, 12 that years long ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, 12 years ago. Was it, yeah, two years ago, I was actually celebrating the 10th anniversary. Okay. And, and that's actually when I stopped updating the website. So okay. still, the, the website is still up and running. Right. And I will you know, um, keep it alive for as long as it takes. But updating it, it's not happening because it's just too demanding. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> I think you always get to a stage as a blogger uh, where you either make it, make that your living, right? You, you, yeah. make, you become so yeah. popular that you actually are able to make a good money, amount of money out of that. Or then it's really hard to find <laughs> yeah. the motivation to keep yeah. it going, right? Yep. As yep. a side note, as a side I, project. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so I think Vision Complexity, again, it's still there. And then, again, going back to going back to October 20, 2005, I launched the, 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 the website. I think there was maybe like 200 projects listed when it was live for okay. the first time. Uh, then it went up to 1,000, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden people started, you know, Interested, becoming interested right. in, in the website. People are coming in, people are coming out, and then I think the first invites for a conference was, if I recall correctly, was Mesh Forum. Oh, I don't gosh. even know if the conference is still going in uh, San Francisco. Okay. And then that's when the first time I felt, well, I mean, people are reading this, yeah. are interested in, in the topic. And of, they wanted you to talk about data visualization? And they wanted to talk about uh, network visualization specifically. Okay. Because okay. the visual complexity was always very sort of focused right. on the way people have been visualizing networks. Right. Um, so and this is still just, this is a thing you're doing on the weekends. You, you still have a full-time yeah. job as an interaction Absolutely. Okay. Weekends and, you know, whenever I have some free time. Uh, then I, I did like a form on the website for people to suggest and, and okay. submit their yeah. own projects. So I was like finding ways, but for me that that was the most compelling part. Just doing the research, finding all these great right. projects, you know, categorizing them in interesting yeah. ways, finding sort of uh, ways to compare them, writing blog posts about similarities yeah. and differences between some of these projects, and then, and as it is, you know, once you get into the sort of the rhythm of conferences and you go to a few, then you start right. getting invites for others, and all of a sudden my agenda was kind of like you know. Yeah. packed with yeah. conferences throughout a year. Um, I forgot my peak of conferences, what, what it was, but it was maybe 2008 or 2010. Yeah. I, had, okay. I was attending more than 20 conferences a year. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it got, it got really intense at some point. Speaking at all of them or just, speaking, just attending? Speaking at, both, okay. yeah, speaking at most of them, yeah. This, this leads into, a, I have a series of questions kind of around just sure. kind of these ideas. Um, yeah. Because something that's very interesting to me, um, and I think it's kind of very related to kind of what the thesis of this podcast is, is kind of this relationship between theory and practice, mm -hmm. or kind of the more kind of academic pursuits around design and being a practicing designer. And that's something that's very interesting to me about you and, mm -hmm. and your kind of career is that, and, and we've kind of been talking around it, is that there are these two tracks that are really happening parallel where you're doing visual complexity and now you're speaking at conferences and writing books about these things but 
you seem to have never left also being a full-time designer. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in kind of the relationship between those tracks yeah. for you. Do they influence each other at all? Do you see them as two separate tracks or are they kind of all part of one kind of professional creative <laughs> life? Like how do you kind of break those down? It's a great question. I mean, and that's something that I've done a lot of introspection in, the last years, just thinking, you know, should, should I try at some point to sort of merge them back, right? Yeah. Um, get rid of the fork and, you know, have right. one single sort of like path. Um, but I always felt it's almost like, you know, eating something that you love every day, right? It's almost like having the lobster every day, yeah. tired yeah. of it. So that was one aspect for me. Well, I can maybe just deconstruct your question okay. if you will. Yeah. One of them was this, right? The, the notion that. I always saw database as something that I love so much. I don't want to sort of, you know, mess with it. I don't want to sort of get, you know, I don't want that to become a job. Right? Okay, okay. Uh, even though that sounds sort of like uh, yeah. weird. But I, I, I wanted to keep them separate. Also right. because maybe that was this, this concern of if I did database, I would get tired of it. Right. Only database, I would get tired right. of it. So that was that aspect. Then I think that was the other sort of component to it was really, I always, even though I love taxonomies and I love, you know, systems, yeah. thinking yeah. systems and grouping and labels, all that kind of stuff, I hate giving myself labels or giving even others labels oh, in the sense that interesting. I would always hate to be inside one single bucket, right? I like yeah. thinking to myself as a pluralist and something that I, someone that has like multiple interests, right? right? right. And I think that that plurality has always been much more enriching than, than if, if I was in a, only in a bucket. Right? Yeah, yeah. So even as a teacher, because I used to teach quite a uh, you know different classes at Parsons, right. uh, both undergraduate and, and graduate uh, classes, I learned so much more from the fact that I had a job outside, right, in the, oh, in the industry. Yeah, right? yeah. And then I could bring some of those uh, some of those sort of values into my class, into to my yeah. students. And vice versa, right? I, and I could bring like great critiques, right? Uh, great critics for right. uh, many right. of the reviews we had in, in, in school, but also the, the other way around. So there was a lot of really interesting sort of uh, you know polarization of ideas, okay. right? A lot of like yeah. mix of sort of concepts that you can bring from both sides of the fence. Yeah, um, and I think that was always the the kind of situation I wanted to create myself, uh, right? One that I could cross pollinate both, and and they're very separate but are, are still very much influencing each other. Yes, and so sometimes, yeah, sometimes you, you see the, the two sides are definitely approaching. Sometimes yeah. they might even overlap, either by a project that I'm working on, or even now I'm at Google leading a team that's very much involved in data visualization, right? So okay. there, there have been times where the overlap has been yeah. sort of like quite strong, but they are still separate, right? And also the other aspect, maybe the third aspect, is that I always find academic, academics in general and academia to be too much of an echo chamber, right? Right, right. And uh, even my desire to make visual complexity in the first place was kind of breaking the chain of right. research that, that's never seen by anyone outside of academia, right? right. So putting a right. lot of that research that would normally right. be in a paper somewhere yeah. in, a, in a dusty cabinet yeah. and opening it up to the general public. That yeah. was also like a really compelling reason for me to do that in the first place. Yeah. So that openness of academia to the, the outside world and, and right. bringing the outside world also into right. academia 
was also uh, also always a strong desire. Yeah, we're I mean we're completely speaking yeah. the same language here. Right. I think that was kind yeah. of my. I yeah. mean that's kind of like in a lot of ways that's why this is a, this project ended up becoming a podcast instead of like a book or something because yes. I wanted it to not just be an academic text about how design theory affects practice or how criticism affects practice, but could actually be something that was practical and yeah. was kind of hitting designers who were actually working and not just people who already were theorists or, or academics or something like that. Yeah, because it's, I mean, and yeah, I think that's a huge yeah. sort of concern of mine. It's always like trying to open that as much yeah. as possible. I mean, and you, you touched on, I have two other questions that yeah. kind of came up in, in, in your answer that I want to just touch on quickly. Um, and one was, I was, I was interested in, in that overlap of how much of your work as a practicing designer was revolved around data visualization. Because as, some, as an outsider looking at your career, it doesn't seem like much, you know, and you know, whether it's kind of Microsoft or even, um, you know, I don't know much yeah. about what you do here, but even at like Code Academy or something, sure, it seems sure, very sure. much about user experience, yeah. kind of interface design, kind of that kind of thing, which obviously has some kind of data visualization components, but seems different. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I always, I mean, that was also something else that I've, I've, I've sort of, I've been, I've been thinking over the years, like, should I actually be doing, I mean, I, I right. did some of that in the early times, you know, like when I was right. doing my master's, uh, I did a lot of, I actually was a doer in the, the domain of data visualization. But then, well, first of all, at some point, there was a lot of people doing it. So okay. it's, it's yeah. always like, there's this, like, this field is like being overly populated with doers, right? Yeah. And Data visualization for me always felt more interesting as a phenomenon, right? I mean, understanding sort of like as a the growing of a practice, like what's morphing, what's different from the old days, like what's so this is you know the again looking at networks right. as a cultural metaphor right. more than actually being involved in creating metaphors, like that level of thinking and analysis yeah. was always more compelling for me somehow, and that's maybe where we go back to my right. interest for academia and research, right? right? Traditional. Traditionally, so, and that's still to this day something that I love. Even when I put, you know, together any of my books, the most compelling aspect for me is the research part of it, right? right? Like dwelling into this, like right. thinking right. how it has evolved, and 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 you know, reading and expanding thought, yeah, uh, in that in that domain. That's yeah, that's interesting. The other thing that I wanted that you touched on that I that I thought was interesting was not wanting your work to only be seen by academics. Mm. And, and a subject that's very interesting to me and that I, I like talking to people about is this idea of audience mm. and kind of who, who the writing is for. And especially kind of in my area of design criticism or design theory, so much of it is for other designers or kind of for the profession. Uh, but I also have talked to a lot of people who are very interested in writing about design in a way that's accessible to non-designers to kind of better understand how design is, you know, shaping their lives or, or yeah. something like that. And I'm interested in kind of who, who, both kind of who your imagined audience is when you're putting together a book, mm -hmm. um, or even giving a giving a talk. But also then kind of who are the people that you kind of hear from? You know, what what is the actual audience? Yeah. Who are the people that that are kind of responding to you? Um, so one of the great things that I love about, well, actually, I think you can expand that to th the three of my books and even visual complexity is that my audience is immensely diverse, right? 
it's not a niche. I mean, it might be a niche audience in size, right? It's a small yeah. audience. Let's put it that way. But it's not like specific in a, in a, just one single domain. And yeah. that is something that I love. I, I, I normally say that I'm a designer that has no interest whatsoever in design books, in pure design books. Yeah, also yeah. because, again, like I don't want to be stuck in an echo chamber. Yeah. I don't want to be stuck in just one single sort of point of view. Right. Um, so my, and I think I bring that into my books. And you can see that just by the emails that I get from visual complexity that I've, I've, I've received over the years, right? So yeah. I get an email from biologists, to physicists, to artists, to architects, to yeah. designers, from designers. You name it. I mean, I've had architects that have been influenced by the what I, you know, some of the projects yeah, there. Yeah. And then, of course, you have a lot of physicists being inspired by the, the thinking there, and, and yeah. sort of um, uh, mathematicians are influenced. I mean, it, it's a plethora of sort of audience yeah. because also the diversity that you find in visual complexity is, even though all of them are network diagrams and network visualizations, yeah. they are touching the most sort of disparate array of topics that I right. can imagine, right, from, you know, again, from biology, computer systems, and so on. I mean, I almost want to use that to kind of step back for a second, sure. because I think that raises a really interesting question, and especially thinking that you started the site 12 years ago, that how much, how much kind of the interest in data visualization, information graphics systems has changed in those? 12 yeah. years and, and how popular data visualizations are just in culture now that that's just like a way that people communicate and that there are like journalists, you know, there's like yeah. data journalists now and, yeah. and, and things like that. How has that change kind of culturally changed how you think about that or are there other changes that you're kind of seeing that's kind of two separate questions but yeah in data visualization yeah uh, specifically um i mean of course it has changed a lot um you know when i became interested in the topic again going back to to my masters at parsons this was a very 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 small sort of niche uh, yeah. kind of discipline right that was primarily practiced by academia right uh, not only that uh, but also if you wanted to actually do any project in that Domain, you have to be pretty well off, you know, yeah. well, well, sort of, um, uh, you know, really control or have some sort of knowledge oh, right. in right. the domain of computer science, right? Uh, have a good understanding of at least a few programming languages, right? To make something right. uh, that was meaningful. These days, of course, everything has changed. I mean, we have, uh, you know, programs that have applications and, and, and so on that have opened up this yeah. floor for anyone that has a minimal interest in the domain. So there's a lot of openness in the field, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, I think, well, this is something else that I, I like to, to, um, to say uh, a lot about data visualization is that even though we might think of it as sort of this new discipline to, you know, rising to meet the demands of right. the 21st century, we have been doing, you know, information visualization for right. centuries, right? right. And it, if you have read any of my books, you yeah. can yeah. see that through the pages just by looking at them. Yeah. So that aspect of it, I always like try to fight against this idea that data visualization or information visualization or depicting information is something that's new right. uh, that we have never done before. So that's a bias I, I, I want to you know, fight against right. normally throughout my books. But then, of course, notwithstanding that, I think that the, the field has changed dramatically and, and, and for the good part. And I think there's a lot more people interested in it and coming and joining the field and doing amazing work yeah. in this discipline. Yeah. 
We are we're starting to get short on time, so yeah. I have just a couple quick questions to wrap it up. I have kind of one other kind of big question, yeah. and I just have a series of questions that I kind of ask everybody. Um, I'm interested in if the books, the lectures, teaching, um, that research, has that changed how you think about your work as a designer or, or as a design manager or mm -hmm. building teams? Has that that kind of academic side had a change in, in your work? It's a great question, Jared. I, I don't know. I never thought about that. Uh, <laughs> well, I think, yeah. I, I think it does, right? I mean, I think yeah. every, everything you do, everything you see, everything yeah. you experience ends up influencing your thinking, right? So right. it's impossible not for, for that, that not to have happened, right? right? Or not to continue happening. Um, so I, I would assume that's the case. It's hard to like pinpoint specific examples. Um, but it has, for sure. And I think, so one, I can give you actually an example. One of the great things that I've loved about uncovering some aspects of the past and how people back in the day were already concerned about you know, you know, graphic design, right. depicting information in meaningful ways, is this uh, notion of ars memorativa, the art of memory. Oh, yeah. This was really like the genesis of information design as we know it today. And they created a set of principles, principles to guide designers on all things on how to do proper information design. Right. Uh, because it was more memorable, because it was more attainable by users, etc. And I think that thinking still resonates with me today as I'm a huge advocate of, of universal design principles. Right. I think you can learn so much from that. It, it kind of creates this more right. sort of uh, pragmatic, sort of objective uh, feel into the design, which yeah. can sometimes be somehow subjective. Yeah, which is something that I always like try to sort of stay uh, away from. I, right. I really like the objective nature of design, and I think this idea of, of solid cognitive principles yeah. uh, helps us as a practice uh, in a in a right in a great way. I mean, I talked to when I talked to Rob, we talked a lot about kind of the ideas behind material design, yes. and I think that's very connected to what what you're talking about, and and a very clear example of kind of that research work coming yeah. into a place where you're working now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I really think that there's, for example, there's a huge, I think, opportunity. I mean, again, we go back to academia being such an, uh, in a yeah. sort of boundary, yeah. uh, being an echo chamber, is I think most designers would benefit immensely from just being more exposed to cognitive science, right? Okay. Cognitive science and psychology, because that really determines, like, how users, our, yeah. our audience, yeah. thinks what they need, what they desire, right. what resonates better right. or not for them. So if you have a solid knowledge in many of the studies that they keep you know, putting out yeah. in those domains, in the domain of cognitive science, you can be a much better professional. Right. Right. And your success is probably going to be a, right. a result of right. that. That leads perfectly into what my next question was going to be. This is a question that I ask everybody, and you kind of started to answer it. Is I'm very interested in the kind of contemporary design discourse and kind of what designers are talking about, writing about, kind of the publishing around design. And I'm interested in what you think is kind of missing from that. And and, and the reason that I'm very curious kind of to, to hear what you say is because you had mentioned earlier about not wanting to kind of do it very explicitly design books and, and kind of talking about audience and then the cognitive science kind of what what do you see as as missing right now that's a great that's a great I mean yeah and, and again like the, this plurality of 
something that I forgot to mention, even if you look at the reviews from my, even my latest book, which you can expect for others, you know, you have magazines like Nature, Science, right. Wired, right. Um, and then Art and Design magazines, and the range of reviews. Yeah. And you know, normally we got a book and you get like a review from a nugget. Right, right. Maybe right. you have like technology, design, right. art, biology, science, like all, because yeah. then that's, I think, the plurality of the, plurality yeah. of the, of the book itself. And each of those are probably bringing, you know, different things are important in your books to each of those. So they're probably Absolutely. very different reviews, too. Absolutely. Very different yeah. reviews. But yeah, exactly. To your point. Uh, so on, the, on my book of trees, for example, the second one, you would have, you know, people from like information science coming right. in the book on the value of, of course, tree diagrams of right. the edges. Then you had artists talking about the statics of those tree diagrams. Right. So yeah, you have people coming in and providing different angles and viewpoints. And I think that's one of the, the most beautiful things yeah. of my work is being exposed to that plurality. Um, so I always, again, like getting outside of the bubble of being a designer, only talking to designers and only reading design books, right. Right. which I've always tried, you know, again, to get away from that bubble. But I always find captivating the work of designers that, again, try to cross-link different yeah. disciplines, either by... Uh, you know, talking about design in, in, in terms of economics, in terms of the environmental impact, and we're in a time to different yeah. disciplines. Yeah. I love all of those approaches. For me, I think that as a designer, you always end up creating or talking about a product, right? Some sort of an experience that is meant to be used by yeah. an audience, yeah. right? By humans, normally. So there's no better practice than cognitive science for this because it's a yeah. discipline again it's a it's a domain that really explains how we humans how our users our audiences right. think right what's appealing to them what they sort of like what's not as appealing to them um all you know the different cognitive processes that underline our behaviors yeah. right yeah. i think so if you get to know a little bit more of that it's almost getting inside the mind of your users right? right it's getting to you know putting yourself in your your users shoes mm -hmm. and building empathy and mm -hmm. as a designer, that's the ultimate goal, is right. to build empathy with your user base. Right. Because then you can really properly design whatever you're designing. Right. right. Yeah. Because if you get to know your audience in such a way, then you know you probably do the right thing. Yeah. So cognitive science, psychology, and researching those domains, unfortunately, is not as open today to many design practices, to many right. design. Even schools don't have access to yeah, that. Yeah, right? no. So I think it's a huge sort of problem um, to at the moment, and I think we should change that. Yeah. Uh, for example, you know, some of the research that I've uncovered for my book of circles, and trying to explain how we, why humans uh, prefer circles, why are we so uh, right. in love with circles, right? It all comes from, from that domain. It yeah. all um, pre predominantly comes from studies made in the domains of, of cognitive science. Yeah. Uh, so there's so much we can learn from that, and then can, that can help us gear our design practice in a much better way. Yeah, I also love love kind of what you were saying. I, I, I agree with yeah. all of that, but I really yeah. love what you were saying about this idea of kind of cross-linking or kind of jumping mm -hmm. between disciplines. I feel like that's yeah. that's kind of so much of what my, the kind of uh, kind of writing that I'm trying to do, the kind of writing that I like to read and kind of what I'm trying to kind of promote in a lot of these interviews is that design when connected to all these other things is where it really gets interesting and cognitive science i think is a is you're right is one that has not come up in any of these conversations that i've had but is a, a very big blind spot it's a huge blind spot so for example 
on the topic of like learning from cognitive science. When I was researching for the Book of Circles, I uncovered a study done, I think, 10 years ago, where they compared a, a set of objects, objects and typefaces, so you might actually okay. find this interesting, uh, objects and typefaces, and they were always in pairs, and one of the uh, one of the element of the pair was normally a rounded version yeah. of the object, yeah. so you can think about a, a rounded watch, right. and the other one was an angular, sort of like art edge, sort of version of that. Okay. object or watch. It, they did the same for sofas, for a variety of different objects and typefaces. So you have like okay. aerial and aerial rounded, right? Right. And the users were asked to choose between version A or B. Oh, interesting. Right? And ends down, by far, the preferred version was always the rounded version. Huh. And this could, again, like most designers, for example, hate comic sense. They, they disliked <laughs> it to a great degree. And, and as a designer myself, I, I right. know no special preference for right. uh, uh, comic sense, but it's understanding what's underlying that preference yeah. that could help us as yeah. designers. Right? Understanding that we have a strong preference for rounded shapes, right? For right. Uh, for curves, uh, generally speaking, that That's that so helps again dictate how we actually do anything, from a chair to you know a, yeah. a, a, a digital experience to a typeface. That's so. I mean, I don't want to. We're, yeah. we're getting short on time. Sure, I don't want to sure. get too off on that, yeah. but that's something that I think about all the time because. You know, you're as a, as designers, and and you know, I'm getting ready to start teaching a typography class, yeah. and so I've been thinking about this a lot. Is that, you know, one of the first things so many design students hear is that like, you know, Comic Sans is is bad, but it's like, why? Yeah. You know, it's it's on every computer, and so many people use it as just their default typeface. So there must be something to that. There is. And it's like you're saying, connect that to another discipline, and things start to kind of. Exactly. Answer a little and bit. And then, I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much time here. This is like the whole research behind the Book of Circles. <laughs> right, but, right. But then you can actually uncover even why do we like curves, yeah. right? And, yeah. And uh, so when you look at, for example, Comic Sans or around a sort of typeface, right. there's an area of the brain that, act, that, that becomes activated. And that area yeah. of the brain is the same that activates elements of empathy. Yeah. Right? That's so it, it evokes safety. So right. around the chain, I mean, it's not art to imagine because. In nature, right. think about the right. opposite, right? right? Angular shapes. Think about the teeth of an animal, yeah. Yeah. like the, the rock or yeah. um, a thorn of a plant. Those are objects and shapes that normally invoke danger, right? right. Sometimes could actually lead right. you to death. Right. So roundedness and curves, they normally evoke safety, and people are reassured by those shapes more than they are by a really yeah. hard edge type of. I love that. I mean, especially in, with my interest in design criticism and kind of how we're talking about designed objects and so much of design writing is kind of, is this good or is it bad without any consideration of how it's hitting, you know, how it's reaching the exactly. user, how it's actually existing in the world, where does it come from? And I think that's yeah. kind of exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. And, and I just want to like, on the topic of like, that you were bringing up about connecting different yeah. disciplines. This is something that I've been sort of advocating for so long, and and even on my book of trees, I mentioned this as and uh, as an opposition to a traditional way of looking at human knowledge, which is a tree, right? Yeah. We have the branch of philosophy that has its right. sub branches, then we have the branch of medicine and its sub branches, a branch of design, and then these branches never touch them, right. each other, right. right? They are always right. separate, right? But building sort of like educating someone. Yeah, in just one single branch, it's so limiting, right? Right. And I think for me, at least, there's so many benefits of almost going back to this medieval polymath mentality yeah, of like, just explore as many domains as possible, be inspired by those domains, because especially as a designer, 
I find you can get way more inspiration by, I don't know, reading a, a yeah. magazine on biology yeah. Yeah. than just like reading another yeah. design book, yeah. right? I mean, this is, this is my last, this was yeah. exactly what my last question was. And I was curious, kind of, what are the books, are there books or writers or people that you would recommend, mostly designers, but recommend kind of people operating in this space that are kind of must read or kind of must know about well, people? Oh, that's hard. I mean, most of the, <laughs> most, most of the ones that I enjoyed have, have been sort of the classics, you know, there's, the, you know, the book, The Pattern Language. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's been a really sort of uh, important book in my in my life. On the topic of networks, uh, there's of course uh, the the book Linked uh, oh, by Lasse Marwasi. Um, he's a great figure in the domain of of network uh, okay. of network. I mean, he actually of network science really. Um, so he did this book I think back in two thousand and three called Linked. Okay. And this is a book that I read, and then it kind of changed my perspective on oh, nice. on all I, on the interest for networks in the first yeah. place, and then visualization as a sub 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 interest, uh, and then many books by Stephen Johnson. Oh yeah. Popularizes science yeah. in really interesting yeah. ways. Emergence, uh, to to name a few. Um, there's also, of course, I always say if I if I have to run from my house because there's a fire and I have to get. <laughs> This is a good way to think about it. It's a good way, right? Yeah. Also, because it actually happened once already in my life. Yeah, and, oh, no. uh, yeah. I had a fire in an apartment in New York, and I literally had to make that decision in a, in a split oh, wow. second. This took a uh, dark turn all of a sudden. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, it was I mean, it was actually all good. I mean, I was I was I was safe. Fortunately, nothing happened. But I lost a, a great amount of books and clothing oh, and, and all that stuff. But anyway, you learn from those those, those issues. Wow. Um, okay. But if there was one book on design that I would save, is this book? It's actually done by a collective of, of authors called Universal Design Principles. Oh yeah, yeah, I know this one. And again, why, the reason why I love that book so much is that the book in itself is a principle, the way it's organized and structured. Yeah. It's organized alphabetically, so it's right. like 100 principles. Right. Now they actually have an additional 25 principles. So it's organized alphabetically. Yeah. Uh, every principle has two pages, right, as a yep. spread. On one side you have a description, you have a tagline, you have also a network, an implicit network on the book. It's just like, if you like this principle, you might yeah. also like something else. So you can navigate the book in that way, right? As a network. Right. And then you have really important visual examples on the right side of each principle. So right. I think that book, again, and also because the book leverages a lot of knowledge yeah. from yeah. economics, from biology, from a lot of what we think are design principles actually stem from other disciplines. Yeah. And so again, it really is a book that explores this pluralistic that. view that we've been sort of yeah. talking. Thank you so much yeah. for talking. This was so great. I, oh, I, so I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time and, thank you. and for talking. Thanks for having me. That's great. This episode was recorded on August 14th, 2017 in New York City. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.